Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is a very experienced and well-known M&A professional and entrepreneur, Kisan Patel. Kisan entered the M&A world as a sell-side M&A advisor representing commercial banks and hotel chains. Over the years, with hundreds of transactions under his belt, Kassan realized that many business acquirers lacked efficient technology to manage their transactions and to ultimately make them successful. To address this problem, in 2011, Kassan founded DealRoom, an M&A lifecycle management platform for buyers to improve transaction processes and post-M&A integrations. Then, in 2016, he founded M&A Science, a collection of M&A educational resources to share M&A best practices and train anyone looking to master M&A. In our conversation, Kassan and I discuss what we're doing to improve on the M&A industry's performance when it comes to selling companies, and also how buyers can improve post-integration processes to deliver the value that all parties envision. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kassan Patel. So, Kassan, thank you uh, for agreeing to chat with me today. I'm really uh, happy that you're willing to take time out of your day. Um, you're one of those few professionals that have really participated on all sides of the M&A transaction, right? From advising founders uh, on the sell side and then advising private equity and corporate buyers on post-deal integration. Um to make sure that like all the parties can can realize that strategic value. So um, I think what you have to share with our audience, which is, you know, our fellow founders, I think they're going to get a lot out of this conversation. And and frankly, I was just, I was incredibly fired up that you were willing to talk to us today that I had no problem bumping Mark Cuban from this time slot. So thank you for being here. <laughs> hey, thank you for having me, Todd. It's a pleasure to chat. So uh, I think what would work really well is if we kind of give our listeners your background. It's a little bit non-traditional how you got into M&A, but I think our stories are pretty similar um, how you started on, on the sell side. Do you think you could take us back to you know, the beginnings there when you're representing banks and hotels and, and then what yeah, brought you to solve I mean, the problems you're solving today? really different starting to the industry because I came yeah. up through a real estate background where I found myself in my early 20s working in a real estate company trying to sell houses and people don't want to buy a house from a 21 I think I was back then uh, yeah. kid and I, I was fortunate I had a real interest in commercial the business side I wanted to do something there um, my dad actually introduced me to a couple guys that were starting up an M&A advisory practice. One of the principals recently sold his company to McDonald's, a consulting practice. And that's where I, I got introduced to this whole practice of, of consulting buyers and sellers. And uh, it was interesting. They had a model. They were generating a lot of leads online that happened to be participants or principals of Indian descent that were interested in buying and selling businesses. And they figured, why not hire this kid? Maybe we can barely understand him. He can probably do something better. 
I uh, worked with them for a year, sold about three small little convenience store subway franchises. And I just wanted to grow past it thinking, hey, there wasn't a real organized strategy with this startup. And I, I went and st stemmed off in my own to build a practice that ultimately focused on hospitality, where I started with small private hotel deals, ended up working with Kimpton, Extended Stay America. And then I got an opportunity to sell a bank, which I thought was really fascinating industry in industry nice. and learning how the mechanics and financials and valuation work. And then I worked with some of the regional banks to do some acquisitions and then sell side for smaller community banks, as well as some fundraising. That was a fun little space that uh, led me all the way up until the recession in 2007 when oh. all havoc broke out. Yeah. I ended up downsizing this little practice of five and participated as a solo practitioner doing distressed deals for the subsequent years with an interest in getting into the tech area. And that's where I ultimately did a tech startup that uh, failed miserably. But uh, yeah. in that experience, I got to work with software engineers and was intrigued in how software engineers would utilize project management tools to manage developing software. And that's sure. where I took that experience, reflected back on M&A, thinking, why not a project management tool for M&A? which led to the inspiration to start Deal Room in 2012. And then the rest is history from there. Good for you. Oh, gosh, there's, a, I guess, a lot to unpack there. Um, it sounded like at the beginnings, the firm that you first work with, they had some formula for attracting leads online, right? So I'm sure you were kind of aware of that because you've been doing such great content moving forward, I know that you're kind of a, a focal point of the M&A industry around education. Were, did you get any learnings from that kind of early experience on driving leads online? And this is like back when we used to still fax offers to each other. And yeah. the internet was such a new thing that uh, yeah. I, I forgot there was a, it was a biz buy sell, a merger network. There was yeah. a, a couple of these websites that operated maybe a, a notch in, above like, like a Craigslist in terms of a format. And sure. you would put a anonymous listing for a business you had for sale and you would get a bunch of people inquiring in and then you took those leads and built your database of buyers and then you just ran a circuit, you know, spend yeah. time with the buyers, figure out what they're looking for, go knock on doors, try to get those businesses, list them and keep building that database of buyers. Uh, I, I think that was intriguing just to see that whole process and that experience. Yeah. I When I started my own practice, we created a monthly newsletter okay. that we would send out to that buyer's list to keep them up to date what the current listings were. I think that mm -hmm. was a, a big asset, valuable asset that maybe led to some of the things that we do today where we have sure. email newsletter and these podcasts and things of that sort. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember too, we used to fax the newsletter in the beginning. You'd, you'd buy some software, so it would bulk fax your newsletter yeah. out. And then eventually you you evolve and start emailing it. Uh, you do the old little BCC hack to send it to everybody at once. Oh, that's great. Um, so in starting your own firm, right? Similar to me, you know, I decided to do this after selling, you know, a few companies. I sold my own, but then I started selling for friends and realizing there's just a, a better way to try to help people. So why not kind of hang a shingle? Um, and, and I think like you, what's interesting is you can kind of grow that with bodies, 
right? But now you take on expense and responsibility. And we're in a place today very not dissimilar to 2007, 2008, right? Where the economy is really, really changing. Um, fortunately, we've figured out kind of the lead side to be able to, to scale and maintain. Um, I'm interested just in your opinion, do you think that M&A today is going to take a real hit? Where do you think kind of the big opportunities are going to lie? I feel like the thing I've learned from watching these cycles is M&A shifts. Yeah. It just shifts. You might have different people doing it for different reasons. You know, we saw 07, a lot of these deals were still happening. It just turned into sure. distress deals. Mm-hmm. And you're probably going to see some of that. You're going to see some of these companies that can't make the stretch to the next round of funding. And then they end up going yeah. on the chopping block while you're seeing organizations that have cash ramping up and prepping to do more deals and increase their mm-hmm. volume. So there, and then you got some traditional roll-ups that are just going to continue doing what they do, and that's uh, you know not be impacted as much. So I I think there's still things that move, um, but y- you know you're you're seeing a change. Obviously, some of these larger, high-profile, heavily banked deals, those things are definitely slowing down. Yeah, I think the 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 big ones definitely are, but we see kind of that M um, and A versus Series A where the Venture firms maybe are not throwing more money into businesses that don't look like they're going to be their next unicorns, right? And so those founders are kind of caught off guard saying, whoa, you told me to grow, you know, like this and I'm spending like crazy and I've got a bunch of overhead now that I can't, that's not sustainable. I think we'll see companies like that really have to pare down and then, you know, look for exits. At least that's what we're seeing already this this quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because I, I had a company at the time and 2008 that went through that we were being acquired and on signing day it was canceled because you know of the economy um so there's going to be it's going to be tough times for some of those smaller companies that are not profitable is my guess um so what i also loved is that you go into technology right get some fascination with it learn i probably tools like what jira at least atlassian products that you now learn from the first one yeah Yep, and then bring it back into into back into our world, right? Which is not living on fax machines anymore, but certainly not making a technical leap um, that you've seen. Is that is that kind of the genesis for you for for Deal Room? Excel trackers. I just remember the Excel trackers Excel. when you, okay, yeah. You, yeah. you start with tiny little deals. Maybe you're managing diligence on email with a bunch of questions, but then mm-hmm. you work on bigger deals. You know, ten million, twenty million plus. And then you, you got a longer list and you usually put them on a Excel. And then back then the data rooms were insane. I think they used to charge you like a dollar twenty-five per page or something. Yeah. Uh that back then they'd still come to your office and they'll, they'll bring a portable scanner and they'd scan all your documents, put it up on a server. Uh oh, wow. you know, they, they it's funny that they still charge per page in, in twenty twenty three. Well, I was I was gonna ask that's where it comes from, because I I was not doing this while they showed up and actually scanned in documents. But that's yeah, apparently where the model some came of the from. providers are still on like physical servers. They're not, you know, wow. fully integrated on the cloud. But um, yeah, and that's, uh, that's where I saw hey, this opportunity is highly, highly inefficient, right? Does just the pure cost of managing a data room. Uh, I saw cloud technologies emerging. We're already seeing other industries adopting project management tools and that's spreading out. So specialized uh, project management tools and why not build something to be competitive from both across price perspective 
but also a capabilities perspective to be able to bring together the data room and all the workflows because that back and forth, it gets tedious. You end up batching everything. You have this long list of 300 items of diligence requests you need from the company you're looking to acquire. And when you start, it delays it because it ultimately, when you look at that list, there's certain items that really should get answered a lot sooner than later. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you don't have that prioritized iterations on those important items, which you do in today's tools, right? And then uh, the other piece is um, management of that that um, workflow itself. It's there's a time piece of it. You you, you have all these follow ups that when you when you do diligence, you're always going to have more questions. And when you try doing right. that in Excel, you're literally trying to have a conversation on a spreadsheet. I remember that was the most frustrating part. Then you eventually got to give in and have a phone call saying, all right, let's just talk through this stuff. But, um, you know, like today's tools like social media, you got a little chat thread and you can go back and forth and yep. really have that, that information exchanged the way you needed to. Yep. And, and gathered. I, I know in our processes, we still see, you know, the Excel sheet, here's the prioritization, whatever is highlighted in yellow, right? We got to do first. And maybe from a time perspective, it could be organized better. And what we see is, you know, our founders are delegating, right, to a CFO or even a controller to do a lot of that work. And so there's a there's a gap maybe between that second question that uh, an acquirer is asking based on answering the first question. And yeah, it can get it can get really hairy. And, you know, we're, we're just in the lower middle market. So uh, I can imagine that the bigger deals really w should require something more sophisticated. But I guess in investment banking, when I, I, I'm curious to see, is it an easy sell, right? Because your product is clearly better than what's out there today. So are you running into, hey, we're not going to fix it if it's not broken. We make enough money. Like, I, what, what's, I, uh, I what do you run into the, as objections? I think with the banks, it was it was that. That's it, right. It just, That's right. Yeah. yeah, there wasn't big incentives when you looked at the key stakeholders. Uh, yeah. You know, the rainmakers get compensated off top of the deals and yeah. so we, we we struggled there what we ultimately found was the corporates were the early adopters because i think there's a few different factors but they were very value driven that they could see mm -hmm. internally in the organization of this created value it, it, people were valued for creating value so mm -hmm. that that was a good incentive and then they own so much more of the workflow there's this exercise of pipeline to source the deal the diligence we're all familiar with, but then the integration part, the exercise of actually cashing in on that promissory note you get once you close on the deal to deliver on the investment thesis, which is the hardest part by far. Um, and that's always been our, our focus in the these past five or so years is how do you improve the process end to end to ultimately deliver on the value from integration? That's, I mean, that, that to me was... The, the reason, one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you because that was a problem we seemed to, we identified on the sell side where founders are facing, you know, enormous uh, uh, headwinds trying to get a deal done today, right? So the success rate in lower middle market M&A is like 30% of deals work. And we just found that you know, frankly, insulting as founders that we could put out money and more importantly, lose six months of our time and not get a deal done. So we went to solve that problem. And then 
And, and so we have transaction after transaction and we know how to get the deal done by putting the right people in place, people and process in place for every founder. You're on the back end seeing that, and, and, and by the way, this is so valuable to founders because if you are going to put a significant portion of your uh, compensation in the hands of the acquirer, right, in the form of an earnout, that integration better work. They try to incentivize you by saying, you got to be here for three years. And if you do this, this, and this, you make money. Uh, but that is really just a mystery for a lot of founders going into this kind of next chapter. I'm really interested, right? Your, your software goes out beyond just the process of um, running an M&A transaction for the buyer, but then helps on the integration side to, to realize the performance everybody wants. So can you talk a little bit about how it does that? Uh, well, let's, let's break down some fundamentals because okay. I, I think that's the thing that's really, really interesting in this experience, being able to work with corporations and working on these larger deals. I mean, we work with Emerson and we've worked with them on multiple 11 figure deals uh, and just seeing how this stuff plays out and then reflecting back on this advisory stuff where I'm like, I had no idea any of this stuff. I didn't care about how any of this stuff happened post-close. Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, that's what actually unlocks value. Um, so when, when we think about these, and it's it's I think there is like a, a balance, right? Because pre-LOI, you're, you're, you're pretty limited on who you let in under the tent to sure. work on the deal. And it's a, it's a tricky thing to balance because you're setting up a lot of these key terms that you're going to have to live with throughout the deal. And yep. nobody likes, um, you know, to anybody to, to renegotiate back on, on any of the terms and, and you know, that's just, yeah. So it's, it's, it's tough where you want to do this. And when you think about some of these things related to integration, it starts early. It starts in those early conversations um, really starting with the vision, I, I'd say first and foremost is, can we get aligned around a vision on what this end state's going to look like? I, I think that allows you to make sure on the same page, right? Of why we're buying the company, what, what are the value drivers, understanding where, where we're trying to go ultimately with it. And I, I think sometimes that doesn't get as clear. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, if you start pushing some of the stuff off where we get into, hey, this deal makes sense, we get the numbers and we do the deal, then post LOI, you have your teams trying to figure this out. And I think there's a there's some of the executive executive alignment on what this vision is ultimately going to look like. What that really shapes into is outlining the go to market. You know, from our customers, like what is this going to look like for our customers when both companies are combined? Because each company, respectively, is there to serve the customer, but as a combined entity, what's that going to look like for for the customer? Uh, how are we going to deliver value and you know, how's that going to impact their experience? Cause there's always this big talk around culture when it comes to integration that so much of the fallout is because of culture incompatibilities and, and things around it, which I think cultures are unique, but at least understanding what makes these cultures unique ahead of time can help you frame things to make it work better because there's this approach in how much do you integrate? Are we fully integrating, partially integrating? And just understanding, and it starts with values, right? Everybody's got the same common fluffy words written on their about or company page. Yeah. And uh, But being able to understand it, because if you can have the conversation of what that actually means, you start understanding the way of working in those organizations and leadership approaches. 
they may have a very top-down traditional or, or leadership style versus the smaller startup is very bottoms up. Well, you can't just put those companies together. How are you going to manage that? Are you going to start looking at it as we got to do this deal and give them some autonomy so that we don't destroy this company? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you find some clear red flags that, hey, this probably isn't going to work together. And we, we probably should put these big considerations on reasons not to do the deal because of the, the, the big cultural impact there. Um, that's, I, that's great. I mean, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. I mean, I think those are like the top three, the couple other ones I'd, I'd probably mention is just while you're doing diligence, if you can be very iterative about your integration planning, because okay. I think a lot of times that gets pushed and again, it's getting people involved at the right time. But I think more and more we're seeing that evolve where the integration people, the managers are getting involved earlier and earlier in the deal. But if you can run that parallel track so that you're iterating on your integration plan as you're doing diligence, yep. that can help you get a leg up so that you can really not get caught off guard, have a comprehensive plan to hit the ground running as you close. Um, and then I think the other element too that gets forgotten about is diligence isn't like a one-way street. It should be a two-way. Uh, so think of it as reverse diligence. How do you help that company you're acquiring understand your organization, what are your business lines, where exactly are they going to fit in and be part of that journey. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, you know, this way that's really disruptive and, and they don't feel part of it, uh, which makes the compromises of the people experience and they could be more vulnerable and you're going to end up with a nutrition problem. Um, so the, the, those are probably the key areas that I, I, I've been experienced that I feel like is all stuff that I had never thought about looking back when advising companies that I would yeah. emphasize first and foremost above everything else in doing a deal today. Okay. There's way too many good, good things in this. And I'm so glad that you're bringing these things up because, um, when, when we are advising, right, we're essentially a deal Sherpa and we surround them with the M and a dream team, the founder who wants to sell, um, the, the transactions that we love to do is where, a founder is already integrated or they they know the acquirer, right? And they might have many strategic partners, uh, partnerships out there that give them the opportunity to know, potentially know their acquirer and have the acquirer kind of understand the culture or the way that company likes to operate. And so that that's definitely a leg up, right? In an M&A transaction where you kind of know each other, you know if culture is going to work or not. The ones that... Um, where you, they don't know the acquirer at all, we really like to encourage kind of the, the CEO, if, if the founder is going to report directly to the CEO, to kind of sit down and just get to know each other, right? Are, is this somebody that you can sit next to 12 hours a day and work with? And then, it, it not only beyond the personality, then the vision. Is the vision similar? Do you see it the same way? Does the product actually achieve the goal that the vision is, is kind of laying out? Um, the, the, and, the, and I guess then that would dictate go to market, right? Does the co- company that's being acquired, which is typically smaller, does it have the resources to, to do the go to market strategy that you're talking about? Or do more resources need to be added? Is that, is that a sales team? Does that sales team work well? There's so many things that could be happening as you're saying, and I'm, I'm touching on half of the things that you're talking about, but you can do a lot of that pre LOI to say, no, 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 maybe we shouldn't be dancing together because there are too many missed or red flags, missed marks here. 
or yep, we're seeing a lot of good things. Let's go do the LOI. We'll go into due diligence and have a parallel path because that parallel path is tough to do until you've given somebody exclusivity and you're willing to share, right? Everything. So you articulated all these things that we see and, uh, and we inherently do because we're more about the relationships, hoping that post-integration is very valuable. But frankly, we don't have much impact on that once a transaction's done. So I'm glad that you're kind of training and encouraging these these things. Yeah, I mean, the practice has, practice has to evolve. And I think ultimately you're trying to create as positive a people experience as you can through this transition yeah. because ultimately change can be very disruptive. But yeah. can you can you do it in a way where you can have the teams aligned around it and aligned around those priorities uh, so that the change is a good change for the organization? Um, okay, that's that's awesome. Can you talk to me a little bit more about MA science for people that wouldn't know what that is? Because I feel a kinship here where we are all about, there's just an enormous gap in the, the knowledge about what M&A is, all the different parts. And, and that's natural. Like a founder has got to be hyper-focused building a business. And what do they get once, maybe if they're lucky two times to be able to sell a business in their lifetime. So it's never going to be an expertise. And you are educating not just sellers of businesses, founders, you're educating you know a, a community from multiple segments. So can you take me um, through M&A Science, like how you launched that and what it's doing today? Yeah, I mean, I never had no idea what I was doing at the time, but I had deal room getting it off the ground, going through all those founder lessons, figuring out how to get a productive engineering team, figuring out product market fit, figuring out the go to market and stumbling and falling all along the way. And it was probably around 2017 where we started getting some meaningful traction. We're working with a number of corporations and the one thing I was maybe boggled with was that every time we worked with a new company, I couldn't pick up all the stuff that we did for the previous company and repurpose it. It was, you had to relearn how they thought about M&A. I'm like, these, why are there any two companies that think about M&A the same way? They had a different approach, different model, everything. And um, that's when I came to this realization that the, the bigger underpinning problem in the industry was that the industry itself was siloed. And that all these firms, consulting firms, have developed their own proprietary way of approaching M&A and that there's a lack of standardization and best practices. Mm-hmm. The question was, where's the evidence behind all of this? Uh, around that time, a good friend of mine, Andy, who is a, a marketing leader, uh, suggested to do a podcast. He just, hey man, you should do a podcast. And my response, I remember, was like, what the hell's a podcast? <laughs> I had no idea. And he yeah. just kept encouraging me to do it. He said, don't worry about it. It's going to be the next best thing. You just got to, it's going to be the next big thing. You just got to do it. Yeah. And um, I, I was pretty hesitant, but I said, all right, I got to do something for marketing anyways. Why don't I get it? And then it, it dawned on me. I was like, you know, I could actually use this as an opportunity. We do a lot of these interviews for researching product development. Mm-hmm. Similar approach. He's like, yeah, I just published the same thing. But I can interview practitioners and learn about their experiences and lessons learned and try to identify what are the things that actually work and don't work in the industry. And that's where MA Science started in 2017. Here we are seven years later, and we just hit a million downloads last month. No idea, last week, I should say. But uh, yeah, I had no idea that it, it turned into a community of others that really are seeking out these best practices. 
Yeah, I, I love it, right? We're our podcast, we you know, we started it this year and it's gained a ton of momentum. And what we really focus on are founders, business owners who are solving problems, but then get to go through an MA uh, process. Now, you know, you haven't sold deal room or MA science, right? But you've seen MA from a lot of different angles. Um, I think for us to continue to give value in education, we have to bring on more professionals like you that have figured out how to solve for different problems within M&A and just continue to share best practices, right? So we can all, we can all learn. Um, so yeah, I appreciate it. It's a great resource. I'm on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. And uh, actually you had a guest, uh, Toraj Parang. Yeah. Uh, we had, we had Toraj on cashing out and we talked about his book about planning for the exit. He was fantastic. So, um, yeah, I mean, thanks for what you're doing, right? You know, you're, his, his takeaway is really the, he, uh, I, what I liked about his, um, his thinking is how much it actually goes. I feel like that's a big, big thing that doesn't get talked about is how much effort and time goes into developing the relationship to make M&A happen. Yep. And uh, that was actually interesting chatting with him as well, was that uh, when you actually want to deal successful, you spend so much more time in curating and nurturing those relationships far ahead of time. And uh, yeah, I can't think of anything else that's more true. Yep, yep. Well, is there is there anything else that you can think of uh, advice that you want to impart to you know, mostly founders of businesses who, who are is our audience today? Um, about M&A, what they should be looking for, you know, the, the horror stories, the best practices, any advice that you want to give? Um, you know, to me, it's prep and curiosity are like the two big pillars. If you're exiting a business, prep, I think more you can have, and especially if you can find somebody that's gone through it before just to help you get your business ready, like have your information organized and think of it just selling your house. Like you don't want a little mold stain on the ceiling or something. Get that stuff fixed up. That's the yeah. same thing with your your books, your operational procedures, things of that sort. Because some of these companies that may be looking at your business are going to be large publicly traded companies. And if they come in and they look at it and there's like, there's so much work to do, uh, thinking like SOC 2 audit reports just to get your product and company really ready to go full enterprise or scale, then that that's going to be a big detractor that's going to impact your valuation. So Get, get somebody that really can help you do the preparation, I, I think is huge. That just tremendously builds value upfront by doing that. And then um, second thing, I think it's just being curious. I feel like sometimes you have different stakeholders that drive the process, but you as a founder, if I talk to any founder that has a significant amount of regrets from a sale, because obviously there's financial terms involved, but it's always looking back and seeing what you've put hard work, effort and the legacy that you strive to leave behind all of a sudden start sinking and burning as a sinking, burning ship here. You, you know, you, you don't want that. And I think so much of that could be avoided if you just be unwieldy curious to understand, ask those tough questions about the acquire strategy, what their goals are, how do they plan to integrate it? what your role is going to look like post-close, who you're going to be reporting up to, what your title is going to be, you know, really dig into all those little things. Cause I feel like those things don't get asked and then it becomes the, the tough things uh, to solve for after the close that creates that friction and that, you know, le leads to the, the bigger issues. I think the more of that you can really 
unsurface and just be really curious to understand all these little things and how it's going to impact would would be the uh, helpful that's great uh, yeah those those two points are really key that that preparation can really be even years ahead right of that m a process because kind of getting your books in order right may be a much bigger task for uh, some companies than others so yeah we are big fans of getting your house in order years before and and creating systems that can you can really point to that add scale and value in an MA transaction uh um, yeah. it's like operating practice then, i mean we're, we're doing it we have zero plans to sell but we the way we structure our company is just to make that part of your process so it's presentable sure. at any point in time even for a serious love, investor yes um and I love the second piece too, like the, the curiosity, because, you know, I have one founder right now under LOI and boy, she wants to know everything. Who am I going to work with? What are our goals? And she is asking all of those questions. And uh, really, she is real, uh, uh, the poster child for the way a founder should be. You don't want to just say, okay, there's a big number coming my way and cross my fingers on everything else, right? These, uh, you want the company to survive, leave the legacy, like you said. So yeah, really, those are great. I really appreciate that. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.